real quick. How much technology do you have on you right now? Two laptops, one iPad, one iPhone. <laughs> That's Brent Messenger. And I, I find myself carrying all of them sometimes, which is the stupidest thing ever. I walked into a meeting the other day. I had two phones, an iPad, and my laptop, and people were looking at me. And, and you do you, you do kind of feel silly. When you need a bag to walk into a meeting, right. it's a problem. <laughs> you might have a problem. I'm Charles Krausen, and this is Outside the Box, a podcast from Walmart. And yeah, I might have a problem, and you may have one too. We love our devices and always being connected, things that maybe feel like they're saving us time or money. But are they really? This season, we're trying to figure out how we value our time, like how much your time is really worth. Well, first of all, I'm a, I'm a father with two small children, so uh, I value my time so I can spend more time with them. Today, Brent is helping us explore our relationship to time and how technology changes that, something we here at Walmart have been focusing on for years. Brent is the global head of community for Fiverr. It's an online marketplace where you can buy a service or a gig like building a website. I'm also uh, someone who likes to dabble in music. Um, so I, I play some music with a band sometimes and I have a fun time with that. Um, and I recently actually bought a gig on Fiverr to help me get a piece of music posted on a website that I didn't quite know how to do. Um, so that was kind of fun. And doing that allowed me to have, you know, it freed my time up to do other things. It was something I wanted to do, but it wasn't something I wanted to spend a lot of time on. And I know I sound like a commercial saying that, but the truth is I value my time too much to spend it on that. And I've got too many things to do before I leave. So I bought the service. What instruments do you play? <laughs> you knew that was coming. You knew that was coming. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a guitar player first. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a pretty rough bass player second. I like to, to bang on the drums sometimes, uh, third, and then I'm a pretty bad singer. But I did, did sing uh, lead vocals in a, in a rock band at one point, but, but not well. <laughs> so what was the name of the band? Oh, I can't believe we're doing this. Oh, yeah, now. we are. <laughs> the band was called Every Move a Picture, and we didn't do much to sort of promote ourselves, but a radio DJ in Los Angeles got a hold of this, this CD, and he thought it sounded pretty good, and he put it on the air. And I started getting inquiries from record labels. So pretty quickly, I had to ramp up a business around this. And, and, and it's, it's absolutely true. People laugh. and They don't think of musicians or you know, rock stars as being business people. You've got to hire a lawyer. You've got to hire a business manager. You've got to figure out accounting. There's about to be money coming in. You, you know, I had to set up a corporation. We had to get credit cards. We, it ran the whole game. And I managed every bit of that. And actually, to be honest with you, I think I'm more proud of the way we ran the business than I am of actually how it all turned out. But we ended up with a record deal and tours and the whole bit. And it was a lot of fun. Lasted about 18 months. <laughs> uh, we failed spectacularly, but it was great. Every move a picture available on iTunes. That's right. And the uh, and the, it, that you can tell already that the name of the band is such a mouthful that that probably wasn't a masterstroke for marketing. <laughs> That's great. So what is Fiverr and, and, and what was its genesis? So Fiverr's an eight-year-old company. It's a marketplace for freelance and digital services, the biggest in the world. There's a transaction on the marketplace, you know, every 3.5 seconds uh, every day, there are 7,500 new gigs added to our marketplace. Uh, it was founded by a guy named Mika Kaufman. And really, you know, his, his goal was to, to create uh, as frictionless a transaction as possible between people who had a service they were trying to sell and someone who wanted to buy it. 
And it's, it's really just that simple. Put your, your mind in that of an entrepreneur's and they are starting to come up and they have their idea and they're building it from the ground up. We all know the hours they put in through the course of a week. We all know the time and, and, and the sweat equity, I guess, would be a, the cliche to use there. This is a great way for them to save time and money on that front end as they're still building their concept, isn't it? You know, it's kind of amazing. Mika's idea in all this was to create a service as a product, right? To take this model of freelancing that people have where there's a freelancer who, you know, who, who's on one side of a transaction and a buyer and the buyer gets a proposal and they talk back and forth about their proposal and then they eventually engage. Mika wanted freelancers to be able to say, I will do something for you for X fee. And for someone to say, I would like that. And so that's what, that's what he built with Fiverr. That's how a transaction works on our marketplace to this day. And it's uh, super easy. You know, it allows a buyer, a, a small business person to say, yes, I do need someone to help manage my social media accounts. Yes, I do need someone to build a, a landing page for me. I need someone to do a voiceover for a video that I just shot. So we like to think that we're democratizing access to these services for small businesses. So you serve as the global head of community for Fiverr. What exactly does that entail? Well, it really means being, uh, without, without being, being too dramatic about it, it really means um, having a finger on the pulse of the community. So my job is to know what's going on out there, to know what our community want, uh, what they need, to really understand who they are. My job is to know what they want and how we can make them more successful. That means thinking about everything from uh, you know, their, their experience on Fiverr all the way to training that we can offer them to get better at the things that they're doing, helping them access healthcare, helping them access tax tips or anything else that might help an entrepreneur succeed. So the job, my job there is pretty broad in that regard. Did you ever imagine this is what you would be doing? <laughs> no, I, it, it's funny. I, I, all the time, and sometimes I think about how, um, a community organizer finds their way to a company like Fiverr that's at sort of the, the the tip of the spear in this revolution around independent work. And it makes a lot of sense. Intuitively, I can see how my skill set matches and building a community here is incredibly valuable and it all makes sense. But if you would have asked me 10 or 15 years ago if I saw that, I, I just, I don't think I would have seen it. I guess I wasn't uh, wasn't aware enough of the of the macro changes that were heading us in this direction. You've been working as a community organizer and organizing communities for at least a decade. What was your first experience in that arena as you can best remember and how it sort of inspired you to move forward in your career? Well, without giving up how old I am, uh, I'll tell you my first experience in community organizing was right out of college. Uh, I joined a political campaign that, as it turned out, uh, was a pretty ambitious state legislature candidate in California who had this crazy idea of knocking every door in his entire district. Uh, and he wanted to speak with every voter in person if possible. So my job on that campaign was to rally up enough volunteers to let us go out and talk to every voter door to door and him personally if possible. So it was a, a pretty big task. And that's kind of when I got the bug. I did a couple of other things in between, got involved in some some uh, other campaigns and some other um, companies and kind of flopped ba back and forth between politics and community organizing work and tech, uh, and then found myself working for uh, the Obama campaign in uh, 2007 as a sort of an early member of that team. And then from there, 
you know, did 2007, 2008, 2012, and then I've just been continuing ever since then to work in the field of community organizing. Why politics? Why politics? Um, you know, I, I'll tell you, it, there, there are probably a lot deeper answers than this, but I met a candidate on campus that, and as a college student that I really liked, and I thought he had a good message, and it seemed like uh, interesting work. And when I got into working in politics, I really loved interacting with people, and I really loved the um, energy that I got from it. And I think, you know, it's it's not just politics, it's advocacy, and it's now community organizing at Fiverr. But the through thread there is that I just really enjoy interacting with people and, and talking about what motivates them, what inspires them. You worked on President Obama's campaign, and it was a groundbreaking campaign using using social media and various technologies that at that time, it's amazing if you think 10 years ago, so many of these technologies we now take for granted and hold in our hand every day were just starting. They were used expertly. Uh, in that campaign. What did you learn there on the trail that you would be able to harness and use later? The first place I was on the Obama campaign was actually in California, where I'm from. And the challenge there was we were up against a pretty well-financed, well-established opponent in Hillary Clinton in the primary. And the mandate was, how can we use uh, all this enthusiasm and energy that Barack Obama had been stirring up to overtake her when she can outspend us by about as much money as she wants to spend. And what we learned pretty quickly was, well, we have a lot of people that are engaged and they're very excited about this candidate. We can't talk to all of them at one time. We don't have enough community organizers to spread out. So we need to target, find the most engaged people, the ones who we think we can turn into organizers, volunteers, train them up and, and put, them, put them into action. And the, the fastest way for us to do that was through technology. So at the time, we actually cobbled together a, a suite of tools, commercially available products, including Google Docs and Google Sheets, to create a de facto sort of organizing um, platform to, to put all these people into action. And at the end of that primary season in California, we had over 100,000 volunteers engaged. And on, on the day of the election, we actually, people don't remember this because they think oh, uh, that Barack Obama lost that primary, which he did. But on the day of the election, we turned out more people than his opponent, which was eye-popping. And, and, you know, for the people in Chicago who were running the campaign, they were absolutely stunned that we were able to turn out more people than she was. She spent about $20 million on that race, and we spent about 200000 in California. That's astounding. It was pretty spectacular. I, but yes, when you, put, when you put the hard numbers against $20 million versus $200,000, is, it, is, it is unbelievable. But to me, it speaks to the changing face of the narrative and the changing face of message delivery. And that's something that was done so well back then. What part of that did you take and craft to your own way to bring it into the private sector or into what is now Fiverr? Specifically, since you asked, was is the organizing model. There's a model we use. I won't go too in the weeds on it, but it's called the Snowflake model. And it's a Teams-based way of engaging people um, and, and empowering them to take action and ownership over a specific geographic area. So at Fiverr, we have 100 community teams around the world. Uh, these are people who, who do this on their own volition uh, because they really enjoy it and they want to help uh, the community around them succeed. And they put on events, they put on trainings, uh, they put on social activities, they do all kinds of stuff together. And that's specifically built out of the model that we, um, you know, that we harnessed on the Obama campaign in 2008. 
So for basically someone who works 25 hours in a 24-hour day, I'm sure you have a lot of <laughs> a lot of tech around you at all times, multiple phones, multiple tablets. So are the words digital detox dirty words to you or have you ever tried it? They're not dirty words. First of all, I have a friend who works in an organization who does digital detox. They work on this once a year, getting people to shut down and unplug and do all that. And I always tease her and laugh and give her a hard time about it because she asks me to make a pledge, which I never make. But my family goes on a vacation every year here in California to a part, and this is probably going to be hard to imagine for anyone listening that's not familiar with California. There is a part of California where you get no coverage. It's near Yosemite Valley, a beautiful spot in the middle of the woods, and there's, I mean, there's nothing. There's no internet. There's no cell coverage. You got nothing. You have to go 10 miles out to just get a phone call. And we go there once a summer for a week, and it's fantastic. The first day, I twitch, and then by about the third day, I just feel absolutely fantastic. And, and I realize I've got good people around me and trusted colleagues, and, and everyone's taking care of business, and I'm not worried about it. But it takes about three days to feel comfortable. That's amazing. And what does that say about time? I mean, think about it. If you have two laptops, not a, a tablet, and a phone, so if you're checking your phone, how many times in an hour? I really wish someone could study me and tell me because it feels like, you know, oh, casually, geez, I must be checking it every yeah, 15, 20 minutes maybe. It's got to be every three minutes. I mean, I just, I feel like the thing is glued to my hand. And if an alien was observing me as the first human they'd ever seen, they'd think that I was, you know, that that was somehow controlling my body or something. I mean, it's in my hand constantly. Yeah, this feels like a therapy session, by the way. It kind of does. I'm thinking about it because I'm applying this. I mean, it's almost like we're accountability partners. There you go. Because 11 years, the iPhone's been around 11 years. Is that right? I think that's right. Yeah. And now it's like a you know an appendage. Is it saving us time? That's the question. Is it saving us time? No. I mean, I think there's a. I think we probably all think there's probably a sweet spot in there, right? It's it certainly helps with efficiency. You can tackle emails and you can tackle messages on the fly and you could you can you could sort of parse those out quickly. But is it is it saving us time ultimately? And I, I think you I think you said no, and I, I feel the same way. I, I mean I do. I mean granted, it makes it the thing the thing I love about it, and and I watch my child do this a lot, is the accessibility with which information can be gathered that quickly. I mean, in the snap of a finger, you can go to Google, find what you want, and Educate yourself and in turn have the facts. Now, 12, 13 years ago, that wasn't the case at all. But I mean, if I go, if I work remotely, I'm working off my phone the entire time and I'm staring at it the entire time. You're not enjoying your time yeah. away from the office. You know, I have a friend who he's, he's written a book. Uh, he's a pretty successful business person and he talks a lot about efficiency. And I think Oprah also does this as well. He says, you know, you teach people how you want to be communicated with. And they don't mean necessarily the tone and the and the demeanor that people have around you. Right. It means the, the, the time. He says, I never answer an email after five o'clock and I never answer an email on the weekend. And I said, that's insane. Uh, I don't know how you function. And if I were you, your boss, I would fire you. You know, and this is a person I love, which obviously meant would love and I, a joke, but, but truthfully, I don't know how he does it. But what he says he does is he trains people you know, that geez, you know, he's not available at that time. And he's incredibly efficient about responding when he is available, but he's just not going to do it in those hours, even if he can, because he doesn't want people to think that, that he's going to always do that. Tying that back to Fiverr really quickly, I think it's, yeah. an interesting, it's an interesting tension because our freelancers, they want to be responsive. They want to be engaged. They need to decide, you know, what their time's worth too and how they want to 
how how often they want to be able to be reached, what that's going to mean to them in their career. What it means to it's them. It's a challenge we all face, whether we're freelancing or working at a large corporation or or whatever. So we're not going to let you off the hook here, uh, yet before we wrap it up. I do want to go back to the book, the title, and the uh, and, and the writer um, <laughs> because I need it. <laughs> so okay. as we continue our therapy so, session here, I need the book. <laughs> I can't believe this. This is going to turn into a plug for, for my good friend, Justin Kerr, K-E-R-R. Uh, he's written a book called, he's written two books, actually. One's called How to Write an Email, and the second is called How to Be a Boss. But I feel like the first book, How to Write an Email, is is such good content that I've actually done a, a live uh, Facebook session with him on Fiverr's Facebook so we could talk about the learnings from How to Write an Email because I think it just learning how to communicate clearly in a written form is really important for people starting out. And, and it's a lost art for a lot of people at various stages in their career. And frankly, for me, it's something I needed to go back and look at. When I want to send a message to someone, am I getting the most from it? It's a very entrepreneurial way of looking at communication. How can I do this faster? How can I do this cleaner? Justin calls himself an efficiency monster. Uh, and if you read these books, you'll see why. So if you had more time in a day, what, what's out there that you wish you had more time for? I'm going to magically give you three extra hours a day, now 27 hours. What are you going to do with that time? This has probably got to be in the top five of all answers everyone would give you. I would like to spend more time exercising, sort of taking care of my <laughs> taking care of myself. I feel like that really is the thing. It, it, you know, if you're a hustler, you're a doer, you're someone who's out working hard on a business or you're working hard in a job, um, you may be great at taking care of all those things. And if you're a family person, a mom or a dad or a, a, an aunt or uncle or caregiver or whatever, you you watch out for those kids. You know, you're watching out for other people. Maybe you're taking care of a sick relative. These are things that don't budge. If you're taking those on, you take care of them. So you've got your job and you've got those things. What, what do you give up? You give up your health. You give up taking care of yourself. So if I had three hours back, uh, three would be a lot. You know, I, I would take 45 minutes to an hour just to get to the gym every day or at least take a walk. In the current dynamic, what is Brent Messenger's ideal day? My ideal day, I think, is getting off to an early start. Right now, I, I bang out a lot of morning meetings uh, because I have a team that's distributed all over the country and, and, and coworkers and peers that I work with all over the globe. I love that. I think it's great. I like to start uh, my day with, with meetings where I need to be present and active, and it really helps my mind. I think maybe if I could tweak it slightly, some exercise in the morning would be great. And then it would be, you know, sort of the heads down work during the middle of the day, the writing, all the things that you've got to do when you need to be a little bit quiet. And then, uh, then later in the afternoon, I think I'd, I'd really like the ability to get out, get a little exercise, and, and then be home in time to spend time with my family in the evening. Pretty boring stuff, but I like structure. It just seems for me the way my mind works, that's just a better way for me to work. For someone who is older than 30, uh, let, let's, let's go north of that. Someone who's 40 <laughs> or older with that evolving workforce, two years, five years, 10 years, 15 years down there, that gets, you, that, that gets a 40-year-old to retirement, right? Okay. What does that workforce look like and what do they need to do to adapt to be serviceable in it for the next 15 years? You know, I think about that a lot, actually, because you know I'm getting on in my career as well, and I've and I've I've often thought, am I going to find myself in a position where I'm going to be an independent worker, and and it's scary for me, right? And so I think, I mean, it, to, the answer to your question is, I think I, if I told you I knew what was going to happen, I'd be being dishonest. 
I think we don't know what's going to happen. But I think what we need to realize is there are all different kinds of people in here. When we're talking about the independent workforce, we're talking about people who are highly skilled and trained in a field. Uh, you know, they could be lawyers or tax accountants offering consultations at the highest level, or they could be people who are driving an Uber. Uh, so it's it's a huge bucket of people, and I think it actually we do the whole entire uh, shift, economic shift, a disservice when we talk about it too generically. There are a lot of people um, that are really concerned about this large shift. I think that the statistic is 40% of the workforce will be independent workers by 2020. And it comes, and those, depending on which study you look at, there's different numbers, but they're all really big, kind of eye popping numbers. I think for a lot of people, that's terrifying. And so I think what we're trying to do is really understand what it means in practice understand who these people are and and start to get to solutions about how how this future which is clearly happening can can be accessible for more people and be sustainable and livable for people. Let's wrap it up on a fun question for you. You have had a tremendous career uh, professionally, politically, personally, I'm sure, hearing you explain as you moved from community organization into the campaign in 08 into where you are now, what has been the most surprising and or exciting thing you have seen along that ride? For me, the most surprising thing I've seen in my career is how organizations, companies like Airbnb, Lyft, and Fiverr, really to name some of the biggest ones, have embraced community organizing, traditional grassroots community organizing as something that could benefit a company. And we recognize as organizations, um, well, speaking specifically on behalf of Fiverr, that doing that is good for business. Here's what's happened. People have said, I'm going to jump into entrepreneurialism. I'm going to jump into being a freelancer. And when they do that, they get all these benefits that everyone knows. I get to set my own meeting times. I get to be my own boss. I can take meetings in my underwear if I want. What they lose is other people. They lose the ability to turn around and vent about something that's problematic for them. They lose the ability to ask them a question. They, they lose the ability to go out to happy hour and have work friends. So, Forward-thinking companies, Fiverr being one of them, has looked at that and said, that's not a good way to be. And we have a community here. We can offer these people something that makes their experience in life better, that makes their experience with their business better, and frankly, makes them more connected to us. You seem to have such a positive outlook on this with everything you're doing. Is this as much fun as you make it sound? And if so, <laughs> what keeps you going? What, what keeps the hustle going? It is incredibly fun. I, it really is. Building something that, that's new uh, and hasn't been done before is always really fun. Uh, applying these, these things I know really well from politics um, and seeing them work in a business environment is really fun. Engaging with people, um, and what I mean by this is such a sterile term, engaging with people, meeting these people, these entrepreneurs and freelancers that are out in our community, is, it's, uh, it's life-giving. You know, we just had a big a series of events last week across Los Angeles, and a coworker of mine who'd never been to these kinds of community events before went along on that trip. And just this morning in the office, she said to me, I think everyone at the company should have to do that. If I ever feel like I'm getting stale in my role and I don't know what to do, I feel like I could just tap into this community and and be filled back up. And 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 it's exactly that. It is so inspiring, and and I'm, it's, it, it can easily sound like a cliche, but when you get out among these people who are doing things, 
making brand new companies, making, you know, taking ideas, uh, you know, from their head and turning them into something real. And you hear them talk about how it makes them feel or the impact it has on their lives or their families. It's incredible. It's incredible. And it really, it feels really good. And actually, to be honest with you, coming from partisan politics, uh, it's refreshing because these are all people from all walks of life and there's no battle. They want to help each other. So it's, it's really, it is fun and it's refreshing and it's, it's invigorating. Brent, I appreciate the time. Well, I feel better. I do too. (laughs) I really did feel better, and I hope you do too. Now, if you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. It helps others find the show. Next time on Outside the Box, a classic story of risk-taking, blind faith, and men's pants had a job offer. I had $150,000 of debt. The smart thing to do was to take the job, but I thought that these pants that my buddy had made were great, and I thought the chance to create something was exciting, and we just followed that energy. Andy Dunn, CEO of Bonobos, next time on Outside the Box. Outside the Box.